You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. What a great song, amen? I was thinking, though, when we were singing It's My Father's World and all of those things about creation and things, I was thinking, I wish the Father would warm it up just a bit today. I mean, it's his world, but it's a cold one today. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're here. If you're joining us or visiting with us, we are studying through uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, we're going verse by verse through that letter, Colossians in the New Testament, after the Gospels. Just keep going right, and you'll run into uh, Colossians. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8 together. Um, this is, uh, if you're... During the month of January and, and uh, throughout the course of our study, we're, I've challenged the congregation to memorize uh, a verse. And uh, this month, the verse is Colossians 1.18. And so if you'll immediately close your Bibles and take out a pen and a piece of paper, it'll be a pop quiz <clears throat> this morning. Uh, maybe we'll just do it from the screen. Uh, let's see what we have coming up there. Uh, maybe, Lord willing... Is it up there? Oh, now you weren't supposed to give them all of the words. um, Because I think you all can kind of cheat by seeing that. But let's say it together and then uh, we'll we'll work on it and continue. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Preeminent. Jesus Christ is head of the church. And and that means that he is head uh, not just of the universal church, all of Christians on the earth, the people of God, but he's also the head of every local church. He is the head of this church. We exist for him. We, We are sustained by him. Everything we have is from him. And everything we do is to be to him. For his glory. He is preeminent, as he says. And the reason I think Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae is that he wants them and he wants us uh, to focus on Jesus Christ uh, in, and to be rooted and grounded in him, as we'll see in chapter 2. Everything that we need to be a godly, faithful, and fruitful church is found in Jesus Christ. So we turn today our attention to Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Lord, as we... Look to your word. Please give us ears to hear today. 
And I pray that you would use me as your servant to, to speak, that you would increase and I would decrease, and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We will notice verses 1 and 2 after introducing himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he reminded the congregation of who they are as Christians. He called them holy or saints uh, there in verse 2, uh, believing or faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Then immediately, you notice verse 3, Paul turns to prayer and thanksgiving. We, he says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. It's interesting to note that Paul never fails to include at least one prayer in all of his letters to the churches. And in several of them, there's always a prayer of thanksgiving that he includes. We might be tempted to chalk this up as some kind of uh, formality or kindness, or maybe it's just a a positive segue to get down to the business of the letter. But I think it would be a mistake to read it that way because we'd be missing one of the, the more significant convictions that Paul has uh, that comes through with a verse like that. Johnston puts it like this. His prayer of thanksgiving is a genuine expression of where his confidence about this church lies in God and in his grace and faithfulness. In other words, right from the beginning, he's reminding them, he's reminding us. In other words, who, who, who or what is the force behind the fact that this little congregation at Colossae exists? Who can be attributed to, to, to that? Who saved them? Who declared them saints? Who's brought them together as holy brothers, as he says in verse 2, and in Christ and, and at Colossae? And who is going to produce, who is producing in them the spiritual life that he's going to talk about in verses 4 and 5? God does that, church. If Paul believed that these Colossians were ultimately responsible for the presence of faith in their hearts? Why did he bother to thank God? Why didn't he just congratulate them? You guys are so awesome. You've pulled all this together yourself and you're doing all these things yourselves. Well, it's pretty clear why he doesn't do that. The signs of spiritual life that Paul had already begun noting in this congregation could only be attributed to the gracious working of God in their congregation. Do you recognize that truth in our church? You know, too often we're, we're, we're tempted to look to our leaders, or our members, our resources, our plans, our programs, and we think, well, that's the key to life in the, the church. Beloved, that is not the case. God is the one who gives spiritual life to a church. So right here at the outset, Paul is reminding the Colossians and us that our confidence, our hope is not found in ourselves. It's not found in our methods and our plans and our strength. It is found in God alone. We pause. We thank God for that. Prayer and thanksgiving is not then just where we should begin. It is where we live as the people of God. Striving forward on our knees in humble dependence on him. Now, with the prayer and thanksgiving, 
as kind of the backdrop, it seems that Paul is wanting to reassure the believers at Colossae that God has been, in fact, working in their church. I think he wants to specifically reassure them of two things. One, the authenticity of their Christian faith, and then secondly, the accuracy of the Christian message that has come to them. And that's the two main points today. First, Paul reassures them that they are true Christians. He wants to reassure them that they're true Christians. We always thank God, verse 3, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, maybe you recognize, and if you're underlining there, you may want to underline the words faith, hope, and love. That's a triad that we see at other places in the Apostle Paul as he writes his letters. Is something familiar uh, to us. None of these, though, are thought by Paul as being natural to us, but he's writing, rather, that this is uh, the basic description of what it means to be a genuine Christian. When he includes these three together like this, he's, he's speaking of, of them as hallmarks or evidences of the work of God in our hearts. He's not describing a natural man. He's describing a spiritual person, a saved person, someone who is a Christian. And so we could frame these couple of verses with this question, who is a true Christian? First, he says, such a person is known by their faith in Christ. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And again, the fact that Paul is giving thanks to God in his prayer suggests that he is not highlighting the contribution of the Colossians to their, their faith, but rather God's work in them. In other words, a genuine work of the grace of God in a person's life can be recognized by the presence of faith. Faith. Faith in Christ is a sign of spiritual life in a person. Someone who is trusting, believing, trusting faith in Christ alone for salvation. Now notice carefully what he's saying here. To simply say, and this is common today, perhaps in our culture, to simply say that you believe in God is not sufficient enough evidence to call yourself a Christian. He's very specific here isn't he, of what he's, he's saying. And, unless, of course, you're, you're talking about the God of verse 3. He says, the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in that phrase the three things that, that about Christ that we must believe. First, we must believe that Jesus is the Christ, he says. The Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that's been promised and planned all throughout the Old Testament, the law, the prophecies, the writings, all of these things, we must believe he's the Messiah. Secondly, note, we must believe that Jesus is Lord, right? The God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. That Jesus is ruler of this world and all that is in it, including us. And then third, we must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That is, that God is therefore called his Father. He's the Son of God. Who is a genuine Christian? 
According to Paul, an apostle sent by Jesus Christ with Jesus' message and authority, an authentic Christian is someone in whom the Spirit of God has worked in that heart to produce faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Not just someone's preferred or made-up version of Jesus, but the Jesus in the Bible, the divine Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Lord of all of the universe, your Lord, if you confess him. So Paul here is trying to assure that the genuine Christians in Colossae of their salvation, but we can't help but apply this teaching to ourselves. We, have, we do that by questions. Is the presence of such faith in my life? Do I have faith in Christ? Am I trusting in Jesus, the, the one of the Bible, the Messiah, the Son of God, my Lord for salvation? Again, not some Jesus, not, not some, some of Jesus and some of your good works, but Jesus alone for your salvation. Is there evidence of your faith in the way that you lived your life? If we were to ask someone around you, does that person, are they a genuine Christian? Would they say, oh yes, there's evidence of faith in that person because Jesus is their Lord. Faith in Christ, the first sign of true spiritual life. The second sign you notice is love for the saints, isn't it? Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, fellow believers in Christ, love for the church. Notice this now. This is not just some kind of a general kind of love. Paul doesn't say, yeah, you know, you're a Christian and here's a good sign that you're a Christian. You're just a loving kind of person. That's not what he says, is it? He's not speaking of a general love. He's not speaking of of a, the capability of a person, of anyone, lost or saved, to be able to love and care about someone in their lives. He's certainly not talk about, uh, talking about an I love you because you love me kind of, of love. It's definitely not some distorted view of love that the world would try to put on us today, some love of, that is more like a moral lust of some kind, but rather the love he speaks of here, the love that is the mark of an authentic, genuine Christian Notice, it is the specific spirit-born love for all the saints. That kind of love. 1 John 3.14 says that we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers, our spiritual family. This is why a person cannot... Say I, I, something like, I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with his church. No, 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 that's not a sign of the Spirit of God working in a person's heart of, of salvation. What has caught the attention of Paul in Colossae, look at verse 8, he says, is that Epaphras, one of their own, has come to Paul and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul has heard about their love for one another in the church, and it affirms the evidence that God is indeed working in their congregation. God's nature is love. First John 4, 7 tells us that everyone who loves is born of God, and again, loves the church 
loves the people of God. Yes, it's right that we love people who aren't Christians. Yes, it's right that we, we love unbelievers. We love the lost. That's all great things. We love the poor. We love the needy. But the love that distinguishes us as believers is love for those in the church. Now, Paul's purpose here is to give assurance to the Colossians of their salvation, but we can't help but evaluate our own hearts. Am I giving evidence that the Spirit of God is working in me as seen by my love for the people around me in this room? Am I pursuing opportunities to know and love my fellow Christians? Some of you who attend are more connected with in closer relationships with people outside of the church than you are with your spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. I would challenge you to think about that. What needs to happen for that to change? Do you not sense something of the Spirit of God in you prompting you towards love? For his church. That's the second characteristic. Both of these, faith and love, flow, I think, from the third characteristic of a genuine Christian. That is hope in heaven. Look at it again. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, since we've heard of the love that you have for all the saints. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, we know this is going to come up again in Colossians chapter 3. Ben uh, led us that way a couple of weeks ago when he talked about seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above. Here, Paul says it's precisely this hope, hope of heaven, hope in heaven that marks a genuine Christian. To be pure in heart and to see the Lord Face-to-face in heaven is the Christian's highest hope and desire. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones summarized it years ago. Do you ever look forward to being in heaven? The person who looks forward to death simply wants to get out of life because of his troubles. That is not Christian. That is pagan. The Christian has a positive desire for heaven. And therefore, I ask, Lloyd-Jones asked, do you look forward to being in heaven? But more than this, what do we look forward to when we get to heaven? What is it that we're desiring? Is it the rest of heaven? Is it to be free from Uh, The troubles uh, of this life? Is it the peace of heaven? Is it the joy of heaven? All those things are found there. Thank God. But that is not the thing to look forward to in heaven. It is the face of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, quoting the Beatitude, for they shall see God. To stand in the very presence of God. To gaze on him. Do we long for that? Is that heaven to us? Is that the thing we want above everything else? End quote. 
See, I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at here in Colossians when he talks about this hope laid up for us in heaven. It's the work of God in a Christian, a true Christian's heart that, that places this longing to see God. This hope in heaven is not one that makes you useless on the earth, by the way. It's quite the, the opposite. J.I. Packer wrote this, The hope of a holy heaven to be enjoyed in the company with our holy Savior is a potent motive to holiness now. Someone who wants to see more than anything else, the face of God, face to face in heaven. And that desire causes you to want to live a holy life now. It means, as we're going to see in Colossians 3, hating your sin, putting to death your sin, as Paul says, as you're setting your mind on things above. Now again, Paul is assuring these genuine believers in Colossians that they are true Christians. But as we think about ourselves, we have to ask, is there evidence of this hope in me? I mean, is this what I think about? Do I give any thought to this? Is my life driven in a sense by desires to see his face and this hope of heaven? And is it causing in me such change as to wanting to purify myself from sin, hating my sin and pursuing holiness? Those are quite powerful questions, aren't they? You know, you know, a lot of Christians today, when you talk to them about salvation, their salvation and assurance of salvation, it's tempting for us, and many believers, I think, do this. They look to kind of subjective experiences that they've had. Something weird, something unexplainable, something this or that, and they look to those things for assurances. And, and I think it's fair to say that the Christians in Colossae are maybe experiencing some temptations. There's some evidences coming up, chapter 2, that maybe someone is telling them that they need to look beyond, you know, the normal things of Scripture and look to some kind of fullness of life kind of experience uh, sort of thing. Notice Paul says, don't look there. You don't need to look there. Don't look for some kind of, of second spiritual experiences. No, just look, look for these three evidences. Faith in Christ. Love for the saints. Hope in heaven. That's how you can know you're a true Christian. Well, the second thing Paul wants to reassure them of is that they have heard the true gospel. The true gospel. It, it seems also that some of the Colossians may have been doubting the gospel message that had been taught to them by Epaphras. Remember, that's who they've heard it from, this fellow, a fellow Colossae. And since this young church had never met Paul in person, it, it would have been easy for new and enthusiastic uh, critics or false teachers to be coming in and to create doubt. And so Paul writes to them very carefully. He says, verse 5, the second part, of this hope, I think hope is what he's saying, of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, 
He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It seems to me the burden of that is that Paul wants them to know that they have actually received the true gospel from Epaphras, a true gospel that has led them to be true Christians. Notice how he describes it. First, he says it came to them as a word. Verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. The gospel is a word. It comes to us in a word. It comes to us through preaching and teaching. And it called them to hear and to understand and to believe. Dick Lucas puts it like this, God's power had been brought close to them by a proclamation, not by an act or deed. Rather, God's word was his deed. The gospel message that God has done something for us in Christ, something to save us, this word of good news had come to them. It came to them in the form of a word. Oh, we're... We see it on, on the, one of the memes on Facebook, the popular saying, uh, the, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Some of you have heard that. You know, that is the dumbest thing, I think. Ligon Duncan, a fellow, another preacher, he said it's like saying, feed the hungry at all times and if necessary, use food. I mean, that, that is the... There is no way to preach the gospel other than with words. It is a word. It's a message about Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says it's a true message. Remember, he's wanting to assure them. You've, this gospel's come to you in a word, and it's the truth. Of this, verse 5, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. It's a... It's an absolute and final message. It's, it's the truth with a capital T. The truth. It's not very popular to speak that way today, is it? If you say that, you will often be countered by others who will say, well, you know, everyone has their own truth. And what's true for you may not be true for me, and I've got my own gospel. I've got my own path for salvation. Beloved, God does not work that way. There's not anywhere in the scriptures that says that he works that way. Jesus said, I am the truth. Does that sound like someone that's negotiating this? His gospel is truth. There, there are not many gospels. There are not many ways to God, many paths to salvation, many saviors. There is only one gospel. The word of the truth, Paul says. And we could neither add to that or subtract from that without doing serious harm to that gospel message. When swearing an oath, someone might promise to tell the, the truth and the whole truth and and nothing but the truth. We can say that about the message of the gospel, church. It's not because we've tampered with it. It's because we're sharing the same one Paul shared and Jesus gave. This is not our message. It's the truth from God written in his word. Sam Storms writes, I think it's a helpful reminder, the truth of the gospel is not a hammer with which to oppress those who may disagree. 
but it's a key that unlocks the mind from slavery to idols. It's a light dispelling the darkness of errant thinking. It's a power that liberates and delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of God's beloved son. That's the gospel. So Paul wants them to know they've heard the true gospel. They don't have to doubt it. Third, they can be assured that they've heard the true gospel because it's fruit-bearing. That's what he says in verse 6. The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood He tells this little church in Colossae, the gospel that you heard from Epaphras it's the same gospel that's been preached. Paul says, the same one I'm preaching around the world. It's bearing fruit. It seems, there's language there, a little deep, uh, deeper maybe, but something of God's wonderful purpose from the beginning of creation. I know that you all have just been studying that in your Sunday school, where God said to man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he's going to come back in Genesis 11 and 12, chapter 15. He, God promises Abraham that his descendants are going to fill the earth. And they're going to be a blessing to the nations of the world. They'd be fruitful and multiply and bring blessing to the nation. And it's as if Paul is saying here that he sees God's purpose to bless the whole world was being realized as the gospel is going forth. That might seem a bit overstated, but... At the time Paul wrote it, yet the wonder of this, as he is writing, I think, down in 13, where he's talking about them being delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom. This is happening without any kind of ethnic uh, distinctions or or geographical kind of of locations. Chapter 3, verse 11 says, there's not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What an amazing gospel it does that, isn't it? Bearing fruit and increasing, he says, all places of the world since the day you heard it and understood it. That word understood implies this grasp of the gospel that is a very firm grasp. You understood it, he's saying. The very gospel that Epaphras shared with them, he had heard from Paul himself. This gospel, Paul, I think Paul's words to the Corinthians are applicable when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here's the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. You know, it's as if he's saying there, and I think saying here in Colossians, you don't need to look for another gospel. This gospel is perfectly sufficient. You don't need to look for a more advanced gospel. You don't need to look for any additive to the gospel. There's nothing lacking from this gospel. You don't need to look for some other spiritual experience. All that we need is contained in this beautiful gospel, he says, that you have understood, he tells the Colossians. Have you understood it? Here's proof and impact. Notice the final verse, verse 6. It is the grace of God. 
He calls the gospel there, that phrase, the grace of God in truth. What was it that Colossians had heard? What is it that they'd gotten? You know, I mean, they really grasped onto They got this message. They understood grace, he says. You understood it. And if you understand this, you, you could give the gospel. Perhaps no single word accurately defines the gospel more than this word, grace. From the very beginning, the Colossians had understood that this gospel message was a message of grace to them. Not, not the works of man. Not, not their own religious and, and righteous attempts. That, that they, they understood that it wasn't about that at all. It, was about, it wasn't about their commitment to God. It was about this free and merciful offer and gift of God to send Jesus for us. Who, who lived the perfect, lived the Christian life perfectly on our behalf. And then died on the cross in our place. Whose blood covers our sin before God. Verse 13 again, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what the Colossians understood. Notice verse 7, he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a Faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. The gospel they had learned from Epaphras was the true gospel. Paul says he has no doubts that Epaphras has been faithful, he's been conscientious, he's been thorough in his teaching of the gospel. And the Colossians could know it because of the grace of God that had come to them. Stop and think for a moment, who are some of the Epaphrases in your life? You can think about and you who you can thank God for, whom that message came to you from, who shared the gospel with you. When did you understand grace? Well, if you have answers to those, you you you're, you, you you can join with Paul right here in this thrilling thankfulness to God. I thank my God. He says that God's grace has come to you through the truth of the gospel that's been shared. Is it bearing fruit in your life? As you think about your life, is there a growing faith in Christ? Is there an increasing love for the saints? Is there a, a longing for the hope of heaven? And seeing the Lord face to face. Boy, if there is, give thanks to God that the true gospel has come to you. And if these things aren't true about you, what should you do? Well, you should think about and respond to this message. Jesus has come to deliver you from the kingdom, the domain of darkness, and to transfer you into the kingdom. Turn from your sins. Quit trying to be your own king. Turn from your sins. 
Quit being your own savior and thinking that you're, you've got this figured out in some other advanced way that, that goes against the word of God. Turn from yourself and turn to Jesus Christ as your savior and Lord. Ask him to work in your life. Ask him to save you. And ask him right now. As we conclude our time together today, we have opportunity through our singing to thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, as we sing that, I'll be here. If you need prayer, someone to counsel you this morning, I invite you to come as we sing that song. Let's first thank him in our prayers, and then we'll thank him in the song. Lord Jesus, we thank you as we've been studying this morning this incredible good news of the gospel. We know that it is not the sweat of our brow that saves us, but the blood of Jesus that has covered our sins, that has brought forgiveness. Our faith, our trust, our hope is in Jesus alone. And so, Lord, we thank you today. We pray for those around us. We want everyone to hear this message. We love them. We love the lost, even those who might be with us today, right in this room in the hearing of this. We pray that you'd speak to them. Help them, their eyes to be open by your spirit to see the truth of the gospel, that they would trust in Christ, turning from their sins and following him. We give this time to you today to thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.